My youngest is in a real mommy phase right now. It's lasted um, about his whole life so far. So uh, he, his attitude towards me is very similar to a cat's attitude towards me. I think as long as his basic needs are being met, he's like, yeah, I'm okay if you're here. Just, you know, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. We'll be fine. So when he asked me to snuggle with him at night, it's like, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, maybe that's because my wife is unavailable. That's okay. It doesn't matter. I'll take what I can get. And so uh, the other night I'm, I'm snuggling with him and it's just, he's just, he is so his own person because he'll be like, you know, daddy, you're squeezing me too hard. It's like, dude, my, I am literally barely touching you. Okay, fine. So I'm snuggling with him and then he'll like reach his fill, right? And sometimes he'll be like, uh, you can go now. I'm like, oh, okay. I feel like saying, thank you, your majesty. <laughs> Privileged to be in your presence, sir. Uh, but one particular night, he, he falls asleep. And so then I'm trying to get out of the room quietly. Because, you know, if you're a parent, you got small kids, you're going, like, for the love, don't wake a sleeping kid. Just for the love. Like, I'd rather be uncomfortable. It's better to just for me to sit in the dark for a couple hours than wake a sleeping kid. So I'm just trying to get out of his room kind of stealthily. And uh, he has uh, set up a minefield of Legos on his floor. Yeah. And so I'm not thinking about it when I go in because I can see everything. But when it's dark, it's like, I know there's stuff there. I just don't know where it is. So I step out of his bed and I'm like, okay, one step safe. And then I kind of get another foot out. I'm like, oh, that's Lego. But I can't want to make noise because I don't want to make him up. But then I'm also worried I'm going to break it because then I'm going to hear about it the next day. It's going to be like, like I'm getting called into my boss's office. Who broke this? This was not broken the night before. That's me. Sorry. So I, and I take another step and I step on something else. And then I finally am able to get out of the room. And I'm just like, man, that was so much easier when it was light. Light really, really made a big difference there. Being able to see really changed the way I experienced that. And as we continue our series, What Jesus Started, we're going to look at John chapter 9 this morning, where Jesus heals the, the sight of a blind man. And we're going to look at that idea of how seeing really changes everything. If you have a Bible, if you turn with me to John chapter 9. So John chapter 9, I want to give you a little bit of uh, some context and kind of set the story for you. So Jesus and his disciples are going along and they see this man blind from birth. And his disciples ask the question, uh, Rabbi, they're talking to Jesus, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Because being blind was a, a fairly common thing in antiquity because their medical care is obviously very different than it was now. And any sort of, you know, infection in your eyes, anything like that could lead to blindness. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal. You were on the fringes kind of of society if you were blind. There was no safety net. There was no sort of mechanism to care for you. Your prospects of being married, of being a functional member of society back then were, were severely limited. There was no braille. There were no kind of seeing eye dogs. There were no, no kind of concessions like that, uh, ways that we have to care for people. They didn't have any of those things. And so this guy is just sitting on the side of the road. And, and the assumption is that someone must have sinned that he was born blind. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And it, this happened so that the works of God may be displayed in his life. And so he heals the guy, picks up, I mean, spits into some mud under the ground, makes some mud, puts it on the guy's eyes. And listen, you got to know if you're the guy, you're going, you hear this, right? You're like, wait a minute, what's, what is that spitting? So, oh, come on. I'm already blind, dude. Not cool. Just as somebody's like rubbing spitty mud on your face. And then Jesus tells him, get up, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the men went and he came home seeing. And I don't think we can understate this. Sometimes we read the Bible like it's a sterile textbook, but this is a real story that happened. So I think there's some funny parts that I'll lean into later on. But right now we just need to understand that. 
This guy had never seen. Not that he had not lost his sight. He was born blind. He had never seen. He didn't know what anything looked like. He can now see. Imagine just how radically different his life is. He's like spotting things left and right. He's like, look, there's a thing and there's another thing. I don't know what it's called. We'll get to that later, but like I'm seeing stuff left and right. This is an incredible moment. In fact, it's so incredible, people don't believe it's him. His neighbors are like, wait a minute, isn't that blind Steve? And then the other neighbor's like, well, I can't be blind Steve. That guy's not blind. Sure looks a lot like blind Steve though. Like, it can't, isn't that the same guy? And they ask him, you know, is that you? And he's like, yeah, no, that's me. That's, that's, that's me. This is me. How did this happen? He explains the story. Well, this man named Jesus came. He put some mud on my eyes. I went to this pool and I washed. I did exactly what he told me to do. And now I can see. And so now the Pharisees get involved. The religious governing body gets involved. Because they're like, they want to hear about this. Okay, so what exactly happened? And the guy comes in and, they, and they, he tells a story again, right? He's already told it once, but he tells it again. He's like, they put mud on my eyes and now I can see. And the Pharisees then begin to struggle with that. Like this man is not from God. He did this on the Sabbath. You know, how could a sinner perform such things? And they're wrestling with that. Well, that he, clearly it can't be a, a, a false thing. I mean, God wouldn't have answered a sinner. And so they're wrestling with this. And they ask this guy, who do you say he is? He's like, I don't know. He's the guy who gave me said he's, he's a prophet. And they still didn't believe him. So they call in the guy's parents. Imagine your, your story is so not believed that they're like, let's get your parents in here. This guy's an adult. They're like, let's get your parents in here. Let's ask them. And they're like, yeah, yeah, this is our son. And we know he was born blind. But, you know, for the rest of that stuff, you know, we don't really know. We don't know what's going on. We don't know how he, he, how he can see. And then they pass the buck. They're like, he's old enough. Ask him. They're like, why are you asking us? I don't know. Just ask this guy. Because in this context, they're fearful of, of what the Pharisees will do. They're fearful of the Jewish leaders because they know that people who acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah get kicked out of community, get kicked out of the synagogue. And there's a, there's a real cultural cost to this. And so they're like, ask him, I don't, why you don't involve us? He's old enough. And so the Pharisees bring in the guy a second time, but now he's gonna tell his story for the third time here. And the, the implication here is that he's lying. They're like, give glory to God by telling the truth, which is like, come on, like between us. Like, I know it's a great story for other people, but like, just, you know. You've been faking this whole time. Just tell us, no big deal. You've been faking for 30 years. You got us, well done. But you, but you, you can be honest with us. And he tells the same story again. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Man, I love that verse. I love that verse. They don't believe him. They go back and forth wrestling about this and, and they're not the Pharisees disagree with how this could have happened and the guy keeps telling the same story and then they eventually get angry with him and they kick him out. They kick him out of community. They kick him out of the synagogue. And so when Jesus hears that they've thrown him out, Jesus goes and finds him again. And he says, do you believe in the son of man? A, a title that Jesus referred to himself by. And the guy says, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus says, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. Jesus says, that's me. I'm him. And the man says to him, Lord, I believe. Because Jesus says, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Now, the point in all of what Jesus is saying here is significant. There's a lot to this. And so we're going to start wading through it and unpack it. And I want to give you some ways to kind of, uh, some anchor points for this. And the first is Jesus meets us. Jesus meets us, Right? The text here doesn't specifically say that they sought this guy out or even that this guy specifically reached out 
to them for help. Jesus is walking with his disciples. They walk by and the disciples pose this theological question. Who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Because that was the understanding, right? If, if someone is, is suffering in some way, somebody somewhere messed up at somebody's suffering. Somebody sinned. Was it this guy? Was it his parents? Who sinned? There must be some causation to it. Rather than the broad view that the world is broken and that evil exists and that suffering is a part of reality because of the presence of sin in the world, they go, no, there must be some specific sin. And while that's certainly true, sometimes we do experience things as a direct result of our own sin. Not everything is that way and certainly not this. And Jesus' answer to them is, is very specific. His, his answer gives a, a, a clearer picture for us of who he is and what he came to do. It says, neither this man nor his parents sinned in verse three, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The timing of all this matters a lot. What do I mean by that? Well, this happens right around the Feast of Tabernacles, or also called Sukkot. During the Feast of Tabernacles in the Bible, two important ceremonies took place that Jesus interacts with here. The first is that Jews carried torches around the temple, all right, as a symbol that the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles, right? That God had called the Jewish people, the promises God had made to Abraham, I'll bless all the nations through you, and as a picture that the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles. And so Jesus calling himself light of the world here in chapter nine, and he says it earlier in chapter eight, it has a special significance to his audience because Jesus is using a contemporary example to show the truth of himself. People would have seen the lights at night. People would have known this thing was happening. And Jesus is saying, this thing that you celebrate, this thing that you do, that points to me. And the second specific thing here is that the priest drew water from the pool of Siloam and carried it to the temple as part of the, the ceremony. It poured it into this, this uh, basin by the altar. And Jesus tells the guy to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And John gives us a very specific detail here. He says, Siloam means sent in verse seven. But what's interesting is that in verse four, Jesus identifies himself as the one who has been sent. In sending the blind man to the pool of Siloam, Jesus, the sent one, sends the man to the pool of sent, hashtag wordplay. See what he's doing there. It's kind of cool because what Jesus is really saying is he's showing that he is the one doing the healing, not the pool. Jesus is the greater sent one, sent to bring healing, not just physical, but also and ultimately spiritual. Because the fundamental issue in this chapter is not the man's state of physical blindness, but his state of spiritual blindness. Well, how, how can we say that? Well, we get clues here. John 9, 39 says, I entered the wor this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they are blind. John 9, 5 says, but while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is pointing himself as the light that reveals, that gives sight. Jesus meets us in the midst of our darkness, of our spiritual darkness, our spiritual brokenness. He meets us there that we might see him for who he is. Jesus is doing here something that we've, we've talked about many times as we've gone through John. Jesus is using an, a story of healing to point to the, the, what our, is really our root issue, which is the spiritual healing that we need. Here he's using a, a story of restoring blindness as a picture of our spiritual blindness. 
that he's come to cure. Jesus meets us where we are in our darkness, in our confusion, meets this guy where he is. How's Jesus met you? How's Jesus meeting you right now? I think there are times that we can lose sight of that or we can forget. We can be so busy asking God to work in our lives. We can miss the fact that he's working, he's he's met us right here. You're here this morning. That's one of the ways that, that Jesus is meeting you. You could be anywhere. You could be at Dunkin' Donuts right now, working your way through 36 donut holes, which really sounds good, actually. The soft glaze, those are my favorite. But you're here. Jesus meets us. How's he meeting you? The second thing we can anchor point in this story is that Jesus reveals us. Because what does light do but light reveals? The light of Jesus reveals hearts here, reveals the hearts of the Pharisees. It reveals the heart of the blind man. Now, who are the Pharisees? We've talked about this before, but it's worth remembering. This is not some evil cabal of oppressors who are just out to like make people's lives miserable. They're not some sort of comic book villain here. These are devout religious men who are trying to do what they think is best. As we've mentioned before, this is what it looks like when you focus on the methods of faith more than the object of faith. They were fixated on the law, and by doing so, they took their eyes off the God of the law. This is what misguided religion looks like. These are devout men trying to do their best, but in doing so, have missed sight of what God had called them to to begin with. They had focused on secondary things. They had focused on tertiary things. They had made those things primary and in doing so had lost the heart of God. Look at how the Pharisees interact here. In verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. And this is one of the first moments that I think is genuinely funny in this story. So there's a guy that's blind from birth that like everybody can corroborate this is the same guy. And assured of this being the greatest long con in history, they have watched an unbelievable miracle happen in front of them. And their first thought is, yeah, but the timing of it, are we okay with the timing of it? The guy's like, yeah, dude, I couldn't see an hour ago and now I'm spotting stuff left and right. And they're like, yeah, no, I hear that. But again, um, what day was it again? Yeah, mm, just like, I'm not sure I like that. Talk about missing the forest for the trees. Not celebrating this. Apparently, I'm the only one that thinks that's funny. (laughs) I think it's hilarious that this incredible thing happens and they're just arguing about, yeah, but was it on the Sabbath? Yeah, but do you remember what he did? Later on in verse 24, it says, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. The state of their heart is such that there's no paradigm in which Jesus can be who he says he is. They're like, he's got to be lying. There's a lie somewhere. We got to find it because their framework was so rigid and was so built around their understanding and experience of God and the law that Jesus threatened to fracture the whole thing. Surely somebody's lying. In verse 27 to 29, we see the blind man say, well, really at this point, he's the formerly blind man. I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? This is the second thing I think is really funny. He's like, do you guys want to become his disciples too? He's so exasperated. This is like, listen, I know the guy. I can put in a word for you. 
And their response to him, I mean, they get angry. They get heated. They hurl insults at him and say, you're this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. Because in their mind, it's Jesus or Moses. It's Jesus or Moses. They can't coexist. And I think the irony here is that they could have phoned a friend and called Moses. Moses would have been like, that's the guy I've been telling you about. Follow that dude. When I said there'll be a prophet who comes after me greater than me, that's the guy. He's great. You'll really like him. Jesus didn't come to take over and and get rid of what they'd done. Jesus came as the fulfillment of God's plan from the beginning, the highest fulfillment of this plan, the highest fulfillment of his mission towards people. This wasn't an either or for the Pharisees. This could be a both and. Jesus is the greater Moses. But in their mindset, their, their worldview had no room for that to take place. They get angry and we see these old patterns come back out. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? Circling back to the questions the disciple had for Je- the question the disciples had for Jesus in the beginning. We also see the heart of the blind man revealed here. He's genuinely moved. Which, you know, I mean, of course he is. He tells the truth despite the truth having consequences for him because he genuinely wants to know. He believes Verse 38 says, then the man said, Lord, I believe. And then he worships. He genuinely engages with this. And I think what I find most profound is I don't get the sense from from the text that the blind man is moved solely because of what Jesus has done. I think the blind man is moved because what Jesus has done reveals who Jesus really is. That's what Jesus was referring to. When he said, this man is blind, that the works of God may may be revealed. Not that God arbitrarily does mean things just to show that that he's powerful, but rather that as Jesus works in our context, as Jesus heals here, it reveals who Jesus is. There's an interesting tension between ignorance and knowledge here. The blind man says, I don't know. He doesn't know where Jesus is. I don't know if Jesus is a sinner. I don't know that the, the son of man is. His parents say, we don't know. They don't, we don't know who gave our son's sight or we don't know how he did it. The blind man even says of the Pharisees, you don't know. The man affirms that, the, that the, by their Pharisees' own statements that they don't really know who Jesus is. But then we also see claims to knowledge. Like, I do know. The man knows he was blind, but now he can see. His parents say, we know. We know this is our son. We know he was born blind. The Pharisees know Jesus is a sinner. The Pharisees know God spoke to Moses. The Pharisees know that God does not listen to sinners. I find it interesting that the Pharisees get in trouble when they think they know. That that posture of learning, that posture, man, I don't know, is celebrated here. And when there's factual statements involved, like we know that's our son, well, that knowledge is is empirical. That knowledge is, is... fact-based. It's like, okay, I get that knowledge. But when it comes to spiritual knowledge, the more confident people in the story are the ones that are shown to be wrong. We get in trouble when we think we know. When we think we understand best, when we think we can wrap our arms fully around something. When we do that, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. Folks, this story should make us uncomfortable. I mean, it should be incredibly encouraging, but it should also make us uncomfortable because we want to see ourselves in the blind man. And that may very well be true for your story. But this story is also a warning to the religious. It's a warning to Christians. It's a warning to the church. 
when we think we know, when we think we fully understand something, we can seek to control it and to control the access to it. We tell ourselves a story, and we, when we tell ourselves the wrong story, that can calcify in our heads and in our hearts. We can sometimes rank the things that God cares about according to the things we care about and expect others to do the same. When we do that in the context of faith, we're adding to the gospel. We're making this a Moses-Jesus issue, just like the Pharisees were. We're saying, no, 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 this gotta be this. You gotta experience it this way. You gotta believe these things. You gotta do these things. This is the way that you're a Christian. Instead of saying, no, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. We allow sometimes our worldview to shape our faith and our view of God rather than allowing our faith and our view of God to shape our worldview. Think of it this way. Jesus is not a bumper sticker. We slap on whatever ideology we are currently driving. Jesus is the whole vehicle. We see the picture of what happens when when we head the wrong way. When we lose sight of God for who he is. It's the spiritual blindness that Jesus is dealing with here. We can't see God without God's help. And when we, we begin to put our own filters on God, we're obscuring God in his trueness for who he really is. What's God revealing to you right now? What's Jesus revealing to you? Right now in this moment, you know, or maybe this week or in this season of life, what's Jesus revealing to you? What's Jesus revealing about your own heart? What's Jesus digging out in you? The last anchor point we see in this story is that Jesus heals us. Jesus does here again what he's already done several times in the book of John. He uses a physical healing to point to a spiritual healing. He uses that blindness. And John 8, 12 says, when he spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How do we have the light of life? Well, when we know the source of the light of life, when we know Jesus. Jesus is the one who pushes back on the darkness. And I love that this this picture really fleshes out sort of the directionality of the gospel. And what I mean by that is this, Jesus heals the guy in verse seven. When does the guy believe? Verse 38, Jesus doesn't heal him based on his belief. Jesus is not bound by that. Jesus moves towards him where he is. He understands his deepest felt need in that moment, which is his blindness, and his deepest spiritual need, which is his disconnection from God. He steps into his story and he brings healing and belief comes later. Jesus doesn't say, get your stuff together, clean your life up, order your stuff. I gotta know you believe the right things. What what are your thoughts on these different ideologies? What are your thoughts on on these things? Well, you gotta get all these things in, in, in order. You gotta believe the right stuff and then we can talk. He meets him in the midst of his rejection and pain and brings him healing. And that healing works in his heart and softens him and draws him to his savior. That's a powerful picture for us. That's how the gospel works. God moves towards us where we are, not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. And he invites us to enjoy that and experience that. The most deeply significant part of this story, folks, is not that Jesus fixed his eyes and gave him sight. It's that Jesus fixed his eternity and gave him salvation. 
the man's response to that is deeply compelling. I love verse 25. I, I don't know how we don't, when he, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And I think this is a powerful picture for us as followers of Jesus of how we can live, how we can live. Because here's what he's saying. All I know is I am different and I know who did it. I don't know how, I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the stuff. I haven't been to seminary yet. I haven't done any of this stuff. This guy had known Jesus for like an hour. He's saying, all I know is I'm different and I know why. I know who? Jesus. Jesus. I once was, but now am. I once was, but now am. That's a powerful framework. We all have that story. I once was, but now am. I once was broken, but now am whole. I once was an addict, but now am set free. I once was unloved, but am now part of God's family. I once was, but now am. What's your story? Because that's not just sharing about your life or about how you've matured personally. It's not just about this moment in time. It's about how Jesus, the son of God, changed your life. It's not just that the man can see now. It's how the man can see that's really compelling. What does that look like in your life? What does that look like in your life? Let me give you an example. Harold Kuntz was a sportscaster in Oklahoma. All right, he's also a diehard, lifelong Eagles fan. Harold was live on air in 2018 when this happened. And just so you know, the voices that you're going to hear are Howard's producers talking to him. Okay, late break. Here they want! Yes! professional 30 in show but i'm very happy right now in about 30 seconds i'm going to yell very loudly i've known this guy for yeah. seven or eight years and it's this has been a long time coming folks it's been yeah. a very long time huge coming. eagles fan <laughs> huge eagles fan i didn't have a dog in the fight but seeing your reaction makes me have a dog in the fight i am so happy we come in you love you First of all, that's a reminder of better days. <laughs> Second of all, Harold lost his mind. I mean, that was just amazing. It's like, you don't have to question someone's fanhood. That's what I, when people bag on Philadelphia fans, they'll be like, how about Harold, man? That, how do you not like Harold? But I didn't just show you that as like encouragement for the upcoming Eagle season. What I find so compelling with that is when the female anchor said, I didn't really have a dog in that fight. But because of you, I felt like I did have a dog in that fight. Here's what she's saying. I wouldn't have cared normally, but you care so much. 
This is so clearly important to you. This is so clearly part of who you are. This is so meaningful to you. I care more because of how much you care. You with me? I care because of how you care. His passion impacted his coworkers. It made them care about something they wouldn't normally care about on their own. That's what the gospel points us to. That's why the healing matters because when we've been healed, when we've experienced Jesus working in our life, when the blinders have been taken off and we can see ourselves and see God more clearly, we want other people to experience that too. Why wouldn't we? It's about living this reality out so that it spills outward in all areas of your life. It's the difference between being a salesman and a satisfied customer. There's a strong evangelistic apologetic undertone to this story. One writer says it like this, being an extrovert isn't essential to evangelism. Obedience and love are. All right, so if you're an introvert, that's okay. You're not off the hook. Another, Charles Spurgeon says it like this, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Woo! Get off my toes, Charles. As followers of Jesus, we should think of ourselves as matchmakers, like the human version of eHarmony. As followers of Jesus, life is fiddler on the roof and we're all yenta. That is the extent of my musical knowledge right there. That is it. That is, that's even like a step beyond what I know. You can't make people fall in love. All you can do is introduce them. You can't own their relationship with Jesus. It's not, it's not, it's theirs, not yours but you can be faithful, reach out to others, look for, look for opportunities. You can speak truthfully and openly about what Jesus has done in your life. You can articulate your own, I once was, but now am story. What I found so compelling and what that guy said was not the specifics. He didn't have any specifics. He said, listen, all I know is I was blind, but now I can see. What would that look like if you told that story to people in your life? Listen, I, I don't know everything. All I know is, Jesus has changed me. When you care about something, people find that stuff compelling. Jesus heals us. Where do you need to be healed? And not just physically, but spiritually. Where do you need God to help you see more clearly? And what would it look like for you to live that out around others, that others would see and experience that too? Jesus came to heal spiritual blindness, to restore our sight of who we are and who God is and to restore our relationship with him. When we see Jesus, we see ourselves. When we see Jesus, we understand how much we need him, how broken we are, how, how short we fall of the standard that God has set for us. We have a better sense of ourselves. It's hard to be super arrogant when you realize that nothing you can do could ever make you right with God on your own. But God and his love has moved towards you through his son. Jesus giving us that clear sight helps us see ourselves more clearly. But also when we see Jesus, we see God. We understand that the God of the universe in his love and mercy had a plan before time to put into motion, to rescue and redeem us, to restore us to himself that we could never do on our own. We see God's love for us when we understand Jesus. Only a God who is deeply, deeply loving, who's, who love is his very fabric, would ever consider trading the life of his son for us? What's God working on in your life right now? 
Because what the blind man invites us to do in John 9 is to do the same thing he did, is to make Jesus' story our story. Father, we thank you for this picture. We thank you that you love us this much, that you would move towards us, Lord. We thank you for the harsh truth that you reveal our hearts. Lord, there's ugliness there. There's brokenness there. But you reveal those things that we can be healed. And not just physically healed, Lord, though we believe that is possible, but spiritually healed, forever healed. We thank you that you step into our story that way. Father, we thank you that you love us that much. And would you help us, Lord, to continue to make your story our story. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.